Buckaroo. Holiday. Buckaroo. Holiday. Sport Murphy Jamboree. Part 1. Interview. Welcome to a Buckaroo Holiday special. It might actually be better described as Buckaroo Holiday Presents. Something like that, because it's an unusual one. And it's probably not suited to all listeners. Consider this a warning. Some months back, I thought of doing a show based around my own music. Some of you may not know that I spent many, many years writing songs and performing and recording them as a solo act and earlier on as a member of a band called The Skells. Since this is my podcast, I figured why not showcase some of what I and some of my friends spent all that time and effort creating. The thing is, while I was working on that episode, I became overcome with what let's call them difficult emotions. It made it impossible or at least inadvisable to continue, so I dropped the whole idea. But I was talking about it with my friend Jim Allen, and he offered to come out from New York City here to bucolic Bayshore, Long Island, and conduct an interview with me about my work and my experiences with it. So we did that, and that conversation comprises the bulk of what follows, along with a dozen or so examples of my work. The talk went on for several hours, and it needed to be edited quite a bit to make it endurable, especially with the songs included. But it's still really, really long. So anyone interested in this at all might want to take it in a few separate chunks. I wanted to retain the substance of our chat and the honesty of it, even if it gets a little weird or dark or tedious. Because Jim was a real mensch for doing this, and let's face it, it's the only thing of its kind that's ever going to exist regarding my music. So, if only as a rare gesture of respect from myself to myself, I'm going to do this here to memorialize one person's life's work. Vanity pressed to the last. But as an alternative or companion piece, I'm going to be posting another one without all the palaver. That one's going to be more of a collage or stream of numbers with minimal commentary. There's going to be a regular show very soon, so if listening to this turns out to feel more like the Batan Death March, just skip it, no hard feelings. Come back next time for more of our customary shenanigans. If you do stick with it, I hope you enjoy. By the way, we recorded it right before the world closed down, so there may be some anachronistic comments in it. I don't know. If there are, sue me. My, uh, my guest here tonight is going to help us uh, navigate through the uh, sludge of my own recorded output. Years and years of my own recorded brilliance. And when I tried to do this before, I got uh, I almost slashed my wrists trying to do the show. Figured I needed a buffer, somebody else here, so I, so I could do this, get through this thing. And uh, they, I could think of nobody better to join me than Jim Allen, who is a musician, a singer-songwriter... Bon Vivant, a journalist of note. He's written for every music publication out there, online and on paper. A uh, dear friend of mine and um, a gifted performer and songwriter. And uh, welcome to the show, Jim. You're the, you're... This is the sound of my voice. <laughs> hey, lady. That's why I brought him. I insisted that he do Jerry. It's, uh, it's going to be mandatory for anybody who deigns to step into the Buckaroo holiday. I won't do the entire show as Jerry, though, I promise. <laughs> So, thanks for coming out here. Oh, my pleasure. And you're going to be talking to me about uh, 
some of the shit that I've done here as by way of framing all these all these tunes we're gonna play tonight. I am the buffer. Buff me, dude. Buff me. Hey, it ain't, it ain't that kind of podcast. Proud spokes feed us Getting down in limbo I'd like to thank Bill Baird For saving me so much trouble I'm floating here in I fear no death or taxes And I have no inner child To give me weird complexes No bitter truths to face No seductive lies most of all, no other people's lives. I'm full of tubes and dreamlessness. My fans are screaming, take her off the air. When the
Well, why don't we start by having you explain about who the Scales were? We were a uh, Long Island garage band, a bar band, cut about three albums worth of stuff, two of which actually got released, and one of which kind of got farmed out to a few small releases of uh, cassettes and whatnot. You know, we played for about six years, um, toured up up in the northeast here, the college towns and stuff, played a lot in Manhattan, played a lot in Long Island. And so basically from what year to what year? Band started in 88 and went to whatever it would be, 90, 93, 94, somewhere in there. We... And that song comes from which record? I don't think that was properly released at the time. It came out on a CD called Evidence of a Struggle, which was a posthumous compilation. You were already pretty pretty well situated as the Jean-Paul Sartre of uh, of rock and roll. <laughs> right. yeah, that was a that was the thing about the sanctity of life, you know. Um, speaking from the persona of a, of a fetus uh, and spokes fetus, spokes fetus, of, and then of a, a person on life support. And then in the last one, it was uh, unclear whether it was the president of the U.S. Uh, t- talking about a, a war or whether it was a serial killer talking about his uh, victims. But, you know, I thought that was a pretty heavy kind of... Or Mick Jagger. <laughs> Could have been. Could have been. Uh, what's the line? What's, what's more horrible than... What could be more horrible, could be than, more other horrible than other people's lives? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the, the crux of the matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think I was. Uh, I was taking some kind of position that the, there is no sanctity of life. You know, it's if if, if everybody has a. If, if you're not going to be like a Jane, you know, and actually brush ants out of your way so you don't step on them, then you're you're, you're bullshitting somewhere along the line about your insistence on the sanctity of life. There's always some carve out you give yourself. You know, that was pretty much where that was at. Right. And what uh, what precipitated the end of the scales uh we were all just really frustrated we were going at it for six years really hammering tongues trying to get something happening and it just never it wasn't going anywhere personally we we did some live performances at the south street seaport with my wife to be shelly and willie of uh, 19th century music and playing in that acoustic setting of those old songs we were doing these uh, old barroom songs stephen foster things and whatnot such a contrast to playing in the in the rock band that I was much more interested in doing more of that kind of thing. You know, either either playing quieter music in the studio or or you know, not gigging at all, but just definitely not doing the rock and roll band thing anymore. You had already been writing songs before you started the Skills, though, right? Yeah, I uh, I had a, a hobby. Really, the only reason I ever uh, performed at all was to do the songs that I was writing. You know, the, I, I never had an interest in being in a band. It was never anything I figured I had any capacity, or any any talent for. Um, I just had these songs and I wanted to hear them. So that was the whole reason to do it. So yeah, there was a, there were a whole bunch of things before the scales. Uh, I did a lot of four track recordings. We had a, a like a fake group called Disturbing Faces at the Window, which was we never gigged or anything. It was just we made tapes. But it was uh, my friend Jim Gray and. Willie and my friend Tony DeCosa. Um, so the songs were there, and the uh, the rest of it was just uh, an excuse to do songs. We should, by the way, uh, 
identify Willie by his full name because we have not yet done that, so people might Willie Willie Liguri. Yeah, he's uh, he's been playing with me. Well, I mean, before I was even in bands, he used to come out to my house and uh, we'd sit around and play, you know, Unit Four Plus Two and Johnny Cash and uh, stuff like that at the house and with my other buddies and we'd sing. So we've been playing together since I guess the late '80s, and uh, I mean, since the the early '80s. And uh, so he's been involved in every project I've done since then. Um, all the Kill Rock Stars albums, uh, the stuff I've done after Kill Rock Stars, the Skells. Um, he's always he's been my, my right hand man. Well, do you want to play another Skells tune? We could do one more Skells song.
Yeah, then we'll see. The irony is deep enough to go spelunking. <laughs> and, it, and it was deliberate at the time, you know. I At the time, I was uh, working... It was a solo project that I was doing while I was in the Skells. And that was going to be for that album. So that kind of departs from what the Skells were doing in a certain respect. A lot of the, you know, uh, like the keyboard stuff and the, the more more kind of production than we usually indulged in. But uh, since most of the guys playing on it were the Skells anyway, it got released as a Skells record eventually. Now, talk a little bit about the the intention behind that song. You're speaking in character. Right. You know, it's just a bratty kind of I'll show you thing. And I was feeling, uh, at that point, a little bit ridiculous about the whole idea of pop star dreams anyway. It was like, what am I trying to prove? You know, um, with this nonsense, you know, I just wasn't really digging it. So it just struck me that, like, sticking with it just because it was something you did all the time was kind of similar to, you know, trying to rub somebody's face in it. Well, I'll show you. Then we'll see. When you you, you turn me down, I'll show you. You know, just this kind of petulant nonsense, you know. You can't fire me. I quit. (laughs) Yeah. I think the the thing, you know, that... had got lost was the the reason why you wanted to do this whole thing in the first place and the excitement of it you know, i was talking to myself you know because part of me is saying like enough of this and the other part of me is saying no fuck you i'm not you know. so uh i guess that's what the thing that was weird though we put it out as a single and one of the reviews we got read it completely po-faced and said you know these guys really want to get signed you know and <laughs> well that's exactly what i was gonna <laughs> that's exactly what i was gonna ask you it's kind of a a razor-thin margin there. Even somebody like Randy Newman, who is famous for his irony, is usually a lot broader with it than uh, than you are on here. So I was mm-hmm. wondering whether it was ever taken wrong and taken for, you know... That happened a lot. It still happens when people react to some of my work. Uh, you know, and I think... Um, in a way, it's a kind of a mark of success with the things because right. I, I I I think where Randy Newman would write character songs, um, it kind of create a type and speak in the character's voice. Um, I'm I'm always singing about myself, you know, almost every time, and it's usually trying to pick on some kind of personally perceived flaw, something that annoys me about myself, or something that I'm embarrassed by. And it, you know, it, if a cr- character is created, it's just a kind of give this thing a little bit of a mask so that there's so that the songs aren't all me 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 you know but uh that kind of satire i i've never been real comfortable or, or capable of of writing that kind of outwardly directed satire you know I, i've tried to write political satirical songs and couldn't pull it off you know but whenever i'm putting myself down i think i, I can move a little more freely you know but yeah people do people took it real literally that you know that i wanted to be as big as sinatra it seems kind of silly but you know that people take it that way and i think one of the things is that you uh I, the, this weird thing at least at that time in the band is you had to kind of feel like you didn't want to make it you know and we did want to make it i mean we didn't want to become rock stars and and you know, snort cocaine, you know, all day long and everything. But we wanted to continue doing what we were doing. And we thought, you know, well, if you, if you get signed and you succeed, you can just keep doing this. It's a great thing. You can make records. You can travel. You can do all these things we like to do. <clears throat> but you sort of had to pretend you were indifferent to it. It's like the replacements kind of thing. You know, Paul Westerberg's ambition was really clear, I think. But he also had to affect this 
devil may care, like who, you know, fuck all this thing. And, I, and it, it, it was a conflict, I think, that caused him a lot of trouble, I think, um, in his career, um, not being able to resolve that. Because it was a silly kind of, I guess, punk-derived thing. Well, I guess the hippies had it, too. Like, you, you can't, you can't want to make it. You know, you can't be, t- you have to pretend really convincingly that you don't care about making it. You know, everybody knows it's bullshit. You don't do it if you don't want an audience. You don't, you know, and you don't look for an audience if you don't want to succeed playing this stuff to that audience. It's, but that's the, that's the head trip of that world. Now you said that this was a song that you were originally going to do as a solo thing? Yeah, we, uh, we were trying to do a Scales album. I'm sorry, I'm crunching my buckaroo ice as we talk. We, uh, we were working on a Skells album and uh, this solo project simultaneously. And there was just so many songs that were coming out at that time. I, I didn't know what to do with them all. And uh, since so much of what I liked musically to listen to was so different from what the Skells did, which was fairly straight, loud rock, it was a nice opportunity to be uh, able to try different kinds of instruments and different kinds of sounds. Well, let's talk about that, that dichotomy for a second. How did being somebody who comes from a musical mindset that is about a lot of other things than loud straightforward rock and roll how did you wind up making loud straightforward rock and roll i mean straightforward in relative terms of course i think one of the things that ultimately did it in for me was that i realized that i was i was i was kind of like trapped myself into writing a certain kind of thing and it was not anybody's fault but mine i had created a situation where that was the music we played we were expected to play loud bar bar band music punk derived rock and roll and um it uh it wasn't satisfying finally you know to just do that for me so um you know and 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 it seemed kind of like um i was pushing against where these other guys were reasonably expecting to play you know because that's what they did you know that's what they liked did you at any point try to edge the band in another direction yeah and they went along with it i mean they were they were cool they were you know talented they could cover all kinds of things but it created sort of tensions with certain kind of things if i if i was writing stuff that was like way too goofy i think they uh chafed a little bit sometimes with that it just it just the center fell out of the whole thing you know it just didn't uh we weren't in the same uh crusade anymore you know it happens i guess to a lot of bands so. and so that was a large part of uh the cost behind your eventuation to uh doing solo stuff yeah and i also quit drinking which uh changed my whole mindset um, you know, I, uh, the whole, my whole scales, I was like a sort of the Dean Martin of, of, you know, garage bands, I guess, uh, you know, and part of the thing was people would be putting glasses of whiskey on stage and I would just be drinking them all the show. And that's what helped me perform was, was, was being loaded all the time. When I wasn't loaded all the time, I didn't really like it anymore. I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. But did you feel, uh, more freed up when you started doing solo and stuff? Musically. Yeah, it took a while though. There was it took it took a few years before I actually got to it. it I was very very frustrated and depressed, and uh, and then I was just writing songs and I didn't know what to do about any of it. And a friend of mine, Le- Leslie, told me I should make an album, and she bankrolled um, an album for me, and uh, we did a thing called Willoughby. It was great because at that point I was able to um, bring a lot of stuff to bear that really never would have had a place in the scales you know like Stephen foster music and the uh, stuff like that brian wilson kind of uh, 
impulses, you know, thing like that. And um, Willoughby was a self-release. I, I put out, I made like, a, I think 200 of them or something. I, I printed and put it in a little booklet that I designed and had printed the local printer. And I was just giving it out to people. And um, a friend of mine uh, suggested that I send it to Slim Moon from Kill Rock Stars, who uh, liked it. Um, and he, uh, he, sent, he, he, he wrote me and asked me to send him some other copies of it, one of which was for John Doe from X. And evidently John Doe said, why don't you sign this guy? You know, this stuff's really good. So that was very flattering. And he did. It took a year for him to come around to that, but it was... Very exciting. Well, should we listen to a, a song from Willoughby next? Sure. What do you want to hear? How about Night Surrounds? Okay. <laughs>
universe in which Paul Anka's libel suit against you rockets you to stardom. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been nice? I don't know if I played enough notes for many of his songs in a row to actually <laughs> breach the copyright. I don't know. I'm not sure. We should point out that uh, those sweet and soulful saxophone tones <laughs> that you just heard were played by Sport himself. Yeah, I had this. I had the horn in my face, and I couldn't play for shit, you know. But I, I knew I had the solo coming up. I didn't know what I was going to do, and you know, normally I just do some meandering piece of nonsense that didn't play too many wrong notes. But it, I started playing the the medley of Paul Anka tunes as a, as a on the spot idea. At some point in, the, in there, I cracked up while I was doing it. Um, it's maybe audible. I, I haven't heard it in a long time, but yeah, you know, it's just uh, stringing Paul Anka melodies together. So that that took care of that problem. <laughs> One of many problems that can be solved by stringing Paul Anka tunes together. Always. It's, if, 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 if Anka doesn't work, you go to Neil Diamond, but uh, one, one, of the, one or the other will get, or Bobby Goldsboro, but they'll, they'll get you through. Let Anka be your anchor. <laughs> the guys get shirts. The guys get fucking shirts. I slice like a hammer. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was an important song for me. Real important. The Willoughby thing was definitely not trying to convey excitement. I was, I would instruct people to play emotionlessly, assuming that any actual emotion would come out anyway. Like the craft work of Long Island. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it was more like, you know, when, when uh, you hear the, the old-fashioned singers who would emote really loudly, and then when, when Sinatra and right. Crosby would do that microphone singing, um, it, it pulled you in a little more, and I just wanted to try that out. But it was... Um, also, the thematic thing, too, was the Skells did a lot of songs that seemed to always be either anguished, uh, soul-wrenching kind of things, or really goofball nonsense. You know, it was one or the other at all times. 
we did these songs like John Leslie, which is this Oklahoma type ballad, uh, epic Broadway tune about a porn actor. And then on the other hand, we would do, you know, these suicidal kind of numbers and it, it was really, uh, schizoid like that. And, um, that was an attempt to br- uh, mesh them, mesh those two things, this sort of, uh, hopelessness with a, a slightly more subdued humor. The goofy and the suicidal. Yeah, yeah. It was it was the Neil Innes thing, you know. I I've, he he was able to uh, be satirical, but also be accessible as pop. You know, he would write a song that was clearly humorous, but also just a catchy song that you got involved in. And he was and he had this tendency to wax philosophical in a lot of his stuff. And it would he meshed it really well. And I, I wanted, it was a goal to uh, try to write a song that did all that at once where it was melodic and beautiful but also snide and sarcastic and also despairing (laughs) and conveying that you know and i i I felt like i got there with that one it was a real satisfying thing and most importantly taking the piss out of paul anka while you're at it (laughs) yeah although i'm a paul anka fan i really am i mean you know i uh i happen to love uh, especially the times of your life that song yeah (laughs) having my baby i I like that song too by the way i I enjoy that record (laughs) i'm not kidding i'm gonna play it on the on the buckaroo holiday now that you mention it i'm gonna put that in there i hear a segue
chance to slake some thirsty garden flower. They won't remember what I did. So when I put in my sorry bid, I'm gonna find some little kid out selling lemonade. Generally, the whole thing with the album is that the songs had to work. I, I wanted the songs to all work as acoustic numbers, uh, for starters. You know, I didn't want them to, to rely on a band or on production tricks or anything. So I felt if the song was strong enough with just guitar, then we could take it from there. So I worked out the whole album with Willie, pretty much. And then when we got to the point where we were ready to go in the studio, we started to flesh out these arrangements. And uh, there's quite a few people who, who jumped in and out on that album, uh, considering that it all sounds so kind of subdued and quiet, there were a lot of people involved. So the uh, the arrangements were pretty much on the fly? In some cases, they were actually worked out in the studio. We would do a track with a click with just Willie playing and then build everything up around it. That particular one was worked out in rehearsal. And it's, it's a kind of example of why that's a good thing to do, because um, there's a, a quiet section with no drums the drummer came in a little early al played the main drum lick a couple of measures early and it sounded great so uh i asked him to play it again and keep that mistake you know and, and he did and then he forgot to play when the band came back in where he had been coming in and then he said why don't i lay out there as well and we combined to keep this you know just this little touch that sounds not that important when you talk about it now, but it's the thing that makes those kind of projects so exciting to do because accidents happen and people bring other ideas in, obviously, you know. That's what made it cool. This is another song where uh, the place that it's coming from is sort of an exaggerated perspective, obviously. Yeah, it's existing just to be a pain in everybody else's ass. <laughs> 
That's as good a raison d'etre as there is, pretty much. Isn't it? I mean, it's kind of what Hitler did, right? I mean, you know, he he couldn't cut it as a painter, so he said, "All right, I'll just destroy the world. You know, I'll show them." But that's where it goes, you know. Don't look now. But get a load of the guy that's painting the wall. Get a load of the guy that's painting the wall. <laughs> Yeah, the one I did want to mention one part in that song that I that I, I mentioned while we were listening to it. The that's like one of the handful of things I've done musically that I'm actually happy with. That little moment. It's always things like that, it's like little seconds of you know moments. <laughs> Going back to the uh, thing we're talking we're talking about a minute ago. Is there a kind of uh, a catharsis too in uh, in writing something like that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, for me, the the main thing with this stuff is is it accomplishing the musical thing. You know, it's it, it, the uh, the therapeutic part of it is something that's not really operational when I'm doing that. But it turns out to be, you know, I mean, the satisfaction of a thing like that is that little drum bit that Al Criscola did or that little descent. But it does. Um, it takes, you know, it takes things that are that are embarrassing or that you're ashamed of or that you kind of or um, things that keep you up at night. Put it in a song. You can actually use it, turn it into something. And generally, it's the best use for most of it is a joke because you know it's, most of it is kind of pointless. Well, as soon as you are able to laugh at something, it loses some of its power. That's it. You know, you you that's that's the dragon killer and the. Uh, it, it turns it into something beautiful. It's alchemy, you know. It, it uh, it's one of the few kind of sacraments that actually works. You know, it's not just symbolic. It it does what what you're intending it to, as just by virtue of the fact you're doing it. You know. Do you think that's one of the reasons you write songs? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think so. You know, the first impulse to, to do to do the same thing that other people do that you admire is there, and that and then and then the uh, in the process of doing that, like oh, man, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Paul McCartney. You know, I, I was that was boy, that would be really cool to be him. I mean, he's you know, he's just somebody I admire. And then when you do it, you realize all the other parts of it and, and how they function in your life. It's nothing that you thought it was going to be. I wanted to write great songs. I wanted to be able to write great songs. I never really got there. It wasn't in me. But I, but I found all this other stuff that that was made it worthwhile. So even though the initial impulse kind of fell short, so many other benefits come from it. Social life, the friends, meeting people like you through it, uh, that all those things. You know, those are those are the benefits of it. You know, um, for me. Well, this this is where we we come to a kind of sticky wicket. Now, the idea of what a great song is, there's no way to define it objectively but in my estimation I feel that you have written great songs well thank you that's very kind of you and it, I've always found it somewhat puzzling that you maintain the opposite so steadfastly <laughs> yeah it's 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 a weird thing because it sounds like you're fishing for compliments when you when you say that or it's just like I you know, you. you uh, I mean, I think that there are some artists who are objective enough about their stuff that they can really 
tell whether it's working or not, whether it's good or not. I, I never had that. Like, you know, Springsteen comes to mind about somebody who like seems to have had such a have a um, a clarity about what he meant to do and how to accomplish doing that. That that kind of amazes me. There's that kind of an artist. Then there's an artist like Brian Wilson who who seems to just uh, receive this stuff from some other dimension. You know that um, it's just a it's a flowing gift. They're, you know, the, those are the two type of artists, these craftsmen who really envision um, their path and their means. And, and these other guys who just are blessed or cursed by the gods to produce this amazing work. And um, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't ever that, you know. So if I was going to have a model, it would be the craftsman type guy, you know. And that was the aim. Um, I, th- I, th- I think I think I'm uh, talented enough, but I just don't think... Uh, I don't think maybe my ambition fell short. <laughs> maybe that was it. You know, I didn't. I didn't work hard enough at it. I don't know. Well, if you're shooting for Paul McCartney, <laughs> well, yeah, you can't. Well, you can't shoot for Paul McCartney, can you? You can only be Paul McCartney. You can shoot for Mal Evans, <laughs> right? Definitely, I, I could definitely be uh, one of those guys. I mean, there's kind of no point doing it unless you're shooting for the, the very, you know, your, your your highest ideal. You know, that's what you want to emulate. And some people, you know, can, um, some people get there, you know, uh, and maybe they don't realize it, but, you know, some of them do get there, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a case of, of somebody who was, um, oh, Brian, Brian Wilson wanted to be as great as Phil Spector. I mean, I, I think that's utterly ridiculous. Was. Oh, I think he was far greater than right. Phil Spector. Um, and, uh. He, he, I don't think you could ever persuade him of that. So I don't think that there's uh, anything. Um, you know. I don't think you could persuade <laughs> Phil of that either. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. They would, they would agree wholeheartedly on that. But, um, I mean, you must, you must know that feeling, though. I mean, you know, the, uh, you just can't know whether you made something good. I think if you got to a point where, uh, the only thing that I can say that objectively, helps me think I did something good was the quality of the people who respond to it. You know, um, you know, I, I, I know enough about your taste and your talent and the stuff that you listen to and everything to know that when you say something to me, it comes from this informed position and, um, it means something other people that I've known and befriended. I mean, some of them are incredible musical fans. They know what's good. Other, other ones are, uh, incredible musical artists who make great music so i have to take on faith well god if they liked it that kind of proof that's proof you know but it's hard to it's hard to internalize it you know particularly when the career itself has been such a disaster it's just never gotten off the ground and it tantalizingly close at points to actually becoming something but never really did and that that you get kind of jaundiced with with too much of that you know, too much of nothing makes a man, whatever. Peter Paul and Harry number. But, yeah, you know, I think it's that. It's a, uh, I mean, part of what we're doing here tonight is is a uh, is a way of um, coping with that, I think. You know, I'm doing this show where I'm sharing all this music that I love with people that they may not have heard. And uh, I've thought, you know, I thought, like, uh, well, you know, I made music for decades. You know, maybe I ought to share some of that, you know. But when I tried to do it the first time, um, when I was putting the show together, I really I became suicidal. As I was sitting here by myself, the way I usually do the show, and introducing these songs and talking about the things, some of the friendships that shattered uh, 
come back to me as I'm listening to this. Some of the people that I played with who are dead now came back to me. I couldn't handle that. Um, my own ambitions that were thwarted come back to me. Um, there's an embarrassment to it. I mean, it's a lot of fucked up stuff that, that accumulates, you know, um, over the years if you're thwarted. And I guess there's a lot that accumulates if you're successful, too. I mean, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't make it out of that trap either, you know. But so it's um, I just I just wanted to do a show that that redeemed it for me. Like, uh, I'm going to treat my music with a little respect. And it was shocking how unable I was to do that on my own, because confronted with it by myself. It was it was horror, horror. <laughs> well, I mean, on some level, the whole enterprise of uh the singer-songwriter is, uh, you know, is an, an existential bear trap. Do you, I'm sure you have these things too, right? Of course. You go through this, yeah. Of course, I mean, daily. Mm -hmm. But, you know, by that same token, I've been listening to, I think I've listened to all of your podcasts that you've done so far, and loved a lot of the stuff, most of the stuff that you've played on it. I feel like... Your songs are as good as or better than anything else that you've played on your show. Very and, kind of you to say that. Well, you know, I. So there's no. It's not like. Um, it's not like it's out of place in that sense. Well, thanks, thanks. That's really cool to hear you say that. I. Uh, I think it's kind of like stand-up comedy is the only thing worse than than this oh, singer-songwriter thing. You know that that's something I could not imagine. I have. Like so much respect for people who put up with that life, but um, you know this is this is a close second, I think.
Yeah. Cactus Boy. So that is from uh, the vile impecuniousness of Sport Murphy. No, that wasn't the title. <laughs> That's uh, the uh, second album for Kill Rockstars, um, Magic Beans, title given to me by Joe Williams, the late, great Joe Williams. Now, roll with me for a second, if you will. Let's roll, baby. The sequel <clears throat> to Planet of the Apes was Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Okay. Not that I'm not that I'm making a case for uh, for this being to uh, to will be as Beneath the Planet of the Apes was to Planet of the Apes <laughs> in that way. But in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, there is which obviously takes place after the events of the first movie, and there's a race of uh, mutants who live underground, and they have this bizarre cult where they basically worship these uh, atomic weapons that have been uh, stored underground for however many hundreds or thousands of years it was since since, uh, humans ruled the planet and created atomic weapons. They wear these masks, human masks, that give them a normal appearance. Mm -hmm. And when they have their religious rites in which they uh, commune with their uh, their deities, the, the atomic weapons, it's a really freaky, freaky film when you think about it. Oh, yeah. They take their masks off and they say something like, you know, I reveal my true self. And then you, you see their, uh, their uh, deformed mutant Their translucent faces. skin and all the... Right. Yeah. Their natural mutant... Uh, faces and all and all their fabulous freakiness right and uh in the best way possible (laughs) i feel like that's kind of what happens with your music on this record (laughs) yeah you feel like that's a fair assessment yeah it was it was uh it was absolutely a mutation it was like everything was was just going to go its own path and grow like wild weeds and i wasn't going to try to impose the discipline on it that i did at willoughby at all Uh, we were so into it um particularly me the engineer paul bagan who worked on it with me we would fill like racks of adats with tracks and then the the mixing was a question of culling those tracks we had and actually brought in sheet music to the sessions the only time i've ever done that for an album and I said, I'm just going to go ape shit with this thing. You know, the the album was my uh, l- my love letter to music in a way because I, I would have a little bit of Ives here, I would have a little bit of Foster there. There was a Willie the Lion Smith derived theme that wound its way through the album. You know, all these all these little hints and and hiyas to my uh, favorite people. And, and yeah, throwing caution to the wind. But the unfortunate thing was like during sometime in the process of that, we we um, I got on Kill Rock Stars. They released Willoughby, and Slim was very excited for the second record, which this was well underway. I proudly brought the finished record into him finally to play it for him. I remember we were sitting in some office in New York, and he was introducing me to people. He was like, "This is Floor Murphy. He's a genius." And I was feeling my oats, man. This is, I really thought this was my breakthrough, you because. Know? After being immersed in this music for all these months, I thought it was completely accessible. I, mean, I thought I had, you know, uh, pet sounds on my hands, you know. Well, I, maybe I did, you know, my pet sounds, because that didn't go so well for Brian either. But, um, but yeah, I remember playing it for, for Slim, and 
my heart sinking as we were sitting listening to it and I kind of could see his face saying this is not Willoughby <laughs> this is not like that uh, I don't know what this is and uh, and in retrospect from a careerist move it was too much you know it it, it didn't help me at all <laughs> well maybe not in career terms but certainly <laughs> art- artistically it's my favorite thing I ever did you know um Although the last thing I did, the, the final album, uh, Room of Voices, uh, I still like most of that. And it's worth pointing out, too, that we're not just talking about uh, opening things out in terms of arrangements and production, but the songwriting itself and the kinds of structures that you're using and the kinds of harmonies that you're using. Yeah. Everything is uh, moving in a whole bunch of different directions from what you did on Willoughby. Yeah, there's there's a a lot of artists have that one point in their career and sometimes it leads to disaster and sometimes it leads to great breakthroughs but it's that that kind of um, feel in your oats moment where you're on the brink of something, you know, and it's probably the most exciting period that people can have, you know, and I think that Brian, Brian was there through that whole Beach Boys Today through Smile period where it just seemed like everything was going to be greater and more new. It's, it's a delicate moment, you know, and it's, it's important to be encouraged at that point. I wasn't really lucky enough to, uh, to uh, capitalize on that energy. You know, it, it, it kind of fell flat. The record, the record you know, was, was sort of... Uh, it lost a lot of the goodwill. Willoughby was, was fairly successful in terms of how it was received. I got a lot of good press... Got a fair amount of radio. Um, I would have toured, but that—that's another story. Um, but the uh, a lot of that died immediately with Magic Beans because it was so out out there to people. It still confounds me that it was because uh, you know I grew up thinking that you know Warner Brothers signed Captain Beefheart. Right. <laughs> you know how weird can this be? I'm on a punk label. I mean, you know, people people are going to be able to get next to this. Everybody knows weird music by now. You know. No? You know, I wasn't the butthole surface for Christ's sake. This was pretty melodic, but yeah, it was. It was neither here nor there. I think that's the problem. You know, it wasn't avant-garde enough to be cool, and it wasn't uh, seductive enough as as pop music to make people overcome um, what was thorny about it. I don't know. Well, what you're, what you're talking about right there touches on something that a quality that was the very first thing that drew me to your music when I first heard it. I didn't hear you until uh, until you put out Uncle. Right, right. Is, That's yeah. how we met. You reviewed Uncle for uh, Uncut, right? Right. Mm. And that being the record which, which follows Magic Beans. When I first heard Uncle, you know, when you... Well, when I listen to a record, especially if I'm listening to, uh, for lack of a better term, singer-songwriter record, when I hear the person singing... Before I even process what they're singing about or anything else, just the feel of their voice and the feeling about who they are and where they're coming from that carries through in their voice, that's the first thing mm-hmm. that's, that speaks to me you know, in either a positive or a negative way, sure. depending on, on what is coming across. On very first listen that was the first thing 
that spoke to me about your music and what came through to me immediately within the first, you know, 30 seconds of <laughs> hearing it was, you know, especially at that time, because you're talking about at that time, early 2000s, and by the 2000s in that kind of indie realm, things were so entrenched with uh, people who wanted you to know that they were above their material. <laughs> you know, that they didn't necessarily mean it to you know, the fullest extent possible, mm -hmm. that there was a level of irony, that there was a level of affectation, yeah. willful affectation, um, that there was a level of detachment, a kind of half-heartedness that made you feel like they thought that putting 100% of yourself into something was not cool. Absolutely. Agree 100%. all of that is the exact opposite of what I heard within the first few seconds of hearing your music. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. That's... And I think that, that speaks directly to, uh, to what you were talking about. Too much like this for some people and not enough like that for mm -hmm. somebody else. Right. And in that sense, I think, you know, maybe relating to the singer-songwriter world and the indie rock realm and the attitudes that may be, you know, in a very broad sense, may be perceived as the norm, at least at that time, you know, those were kind of two poles that you were between where you were neither, neither fish nor fowl. Does that you, does one thing make sense to you? It does, completely, yeah. The stuff that you were hearing coming out of a lot of kind of indie rock labels would be these guys who were kind of like singing in this very kind of can't be bothered kind of and then here this may sound weird but this is the best way that I can characterize it here was a guy who was not afraid to sing like an adult male <laughs> you know <laughs> Well, that was Scott Walker, right? He, I can credit him with that. You know, he had, he had had a comment about like you know, uh, that we, from some interview with Melody Maker or something in the '60s where they were talking about his his chart rivals, you know, and he's like, ah, I don't consider Mick Jagger and them rivals. Jack Jones, now that's a man. Right. You know, he sings like a man. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, listening to somebody like Scott Walker, uh, that was real. That was real encouraging, you know, because you. Uh, you hear stuff like that, and you're like, "Listen to this guy. You know, he's he's a crooner. He's he's not a he's he's not a rock singer. He's there's nothing cool about him at all. You know, he, right. he uh, that was real encouraging. You know, so I figured you could do that. You know, and you could. I mean, you know, you, you just uh, there's a certain combination of factors I think that could have worked for me. You know, um, I, I think, but you know, I mean, if I had had sex appeal, you know, it's just. Some some of what I did could have worked. I don't think I had a plan, but I wouldn't want one either. So it's it's kind of you know I, I was either going to get lucky or or die. You know, it's, and and I didn't get lucky, <laughs> but you, I didn't die. You didn't either. die. <laughs> so fuck it. Well, should we play another song? Yeah. Okay. 
Planets. Well, certainly the uh, the Beach Boys fascination is writ large. Yeah, although David Garland was astute in that it was it's more Four Seasons than uh-huh. Beach Boys on that one, and that he was the only one who really caught that, which is kind of cool. I, I didn't think I succeeded in conveying that at all, but yeah, but yeah, Beach Boys too, obviously. To me, it's East West. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> it's like Biggie and whoever. <laughs> I thought that the Four Seasons were supposed to be the rivals of the Beatles. They were. Well, these, 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 those guys on the other side of the ocean, these guys on the other side of the country, they were they were imperiled by people from all directions. They were Canadians that were gunning for them too. But uh, yeah, start at the end. What? Let's talk about how that song ends. Didgeridoo. That's a uh, Oscar Oscar nominee Brad Dourif, best known, his, of course, for his didgeridoo work. <laughs> that's that's really what he's. Uh, that's really that was really his entree to Hollywood. You know, I think I mean? that's the first thing mentioned in his Wikipedia entry. <laughs> Get me an Aboriginal musician for this uh, Jack Nicholson picture. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, who's that? Get him in here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Brad. Uh, I had actually just met Brad uh, right before that, and. Uh, he told me that that he played the didge and I said well brother have I got a session for you <laughs> and he came in and he wowed you know he just he, he he was nonplussed by my music I think at that time but uh, but he wailed he, he, he was uh, worked his ass off for me it was great so yeah it was, it was a it was a beautiful set of sonics to work with you know that didge droning and all these other uh all this other chaos floating around. It was, it was a lot of fun. And why did you decide to have the song kind of deconstruct itself at that point? I didn't know how else to end it. <laughs> no, I, I was, uh, it was... The idea was... it was a, There was a uh, Gumby cartoon called The Small Planets. And it was... Uh, Art Clokey was in the Army uh, during 
the Second World War, and he met Antoine de Saint Exupéry. Is that how you pronounce his name? The guy who wrote the Little Prince. They worked together on some communications um, detail, and they co- collaborated. And then, so as a tribute to him, um, he did this episode of Gumby called "The Small Planets," where Gumby goes up to these little asteroids, each one containing some kid with a deep, dire personality defect, you know, and. Um, and he actually quotes the line quoted in the song, I'm sorry I wasted my time on your punk planet. I think Pokey delivers that to one of these obnoxious asteroid dwellers because they're all up their own ass, all these people, you know, and they're uh, shunning outside uh, connection. And it's just the, the loneliness of the self-obsessed, of the solipsistic, you know, world. Um, it just disintegrates into space. So the, the, la- the last thing, is, it's kind of a cinematic thing. It's, it's, it's fading out, right. and that's the... That's the universe sort of uh, right. asserting its uh, weirdness. <laughs> Pokey was always known for speaking truth to power. Grave misfortune Marooned in this beige abyss Yon weird sisters churn their cauldron Cackling at each other's quips Cold porter and fine lace curtains Strain to class up this shanty town Excuse me while I slip off and get a sip of something to wash my medication down. I am a bad guest. I don't belong. If I was you, I'd send me home. I got a handshake like a kitchen sponge. I'm damp with weird ideas. Still wheezes out faint signs of life It pauses in the gravel grinding monologues of his wife Whose blood runs black as Guinness Half Grendel, half Sante kinds I've known her all of seven minutes And I've cursed her a dozen times I am a bad guest Too uptight To read the house rules By this Roman candlelight Don't let me get a word in edgewise I might let on what I think La 
I'm a plump one in the punch bowl. the inherent uh, darkness that might come with discussing this album. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mr. Allen is wearing a clown nose. He's a, a red clown nose. And he's wearing he's been wearing a fez this whole interview, by the way. I should have mentioned that. I like to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good time for the clown nose, definitely, to, to cut the, uh, the subtext of all this, or the, the, the uber text of it, as it were. I don't know. Well, I'll leave it to you to say whatever you want to say about that, uh, about the subtext of the album as a whole. Yeah, well, the weird thing with. was that um, uh, when I was making Magic Beans, one of the things, I, I was just more caught up in the um, musical process of it, you know, just this this freedom of, of doing all this crazy music. But I realized as I was doing it that when I was as I was writing the lyrics to all these songs, my Brooklyn... Um, childhood was a big part of it you know and, and the this connection to brooklyn was coming out in all these songs i was even singing with a brooklyn accent i didn't realize it until well into the project and uh, there was a song on it called home is far away that was uh, for my nephew Petey, and it was a kind of description of him breaking out and becoming independent in his life and joining the fire department uh and uh, and he was also in the air force and he it was a thing about the fears that propel you and hold you back and all that, and, and particularly how they affected him. And so that was, uh, was kind of uh, came back to me when 9-11 happened, and he was a, working for the fire department at the time, and the uh, Tower 2 fell on him, and that was in the end of Petey. And it was ultimately the end of my whole family, because they all disintegrated in the numerous different ways uh, in the years after that. In the, in the several years after that. So Uncle was, um, if Willoughby, the theme was, was to uh, keep emotion restrained and express these things in a very subdued and uh, reined-in way, and if Magic Beans was this explosion of love for music and weirdness, the concept with this one was to just spew feelings uh, as almost like a diary, 
as the album went on and we i'd write a song we'd record it move on to the next thing so some of them were going to be straight folk type songs uh talking about the circumstances of it others would be more elusive relating to things that happened to me and Petey when we were kids or our family relations or things like that or my reactions to his death and there was all kinds of different tangents and angles that went on it was whatever i was feeling that day about it that particular one was about a uh a, a new year's party where i met his in-laws his future in-laws and they attacked me you know, i felt like i was uh I, I was blindsided by these horrible people um and when when after 9-11 happened that became uh, cancerous the relationship between my family and that family they were horrible fucking people and that song was about the feelings that i had the night i was trapped at this party i didn't want to react because pd had met this woman and this was his new family and new new and so i had to restrain myself and this festering resentment finally came out in that song and i think the model for the music was kind of glam rock you know it was like a kind of a angry glam piece I thought, in, in my head they, I, I asked the violinist Meredith to sort of play like Graham Prescott on uh, Mott the Hoople's Mott album on violence this crazy you know sawing away kind of thing what's the line uh, I've, I've known her all of seven minutes I've <laughs> cursed her a dozen times yeah. or something like that yeah. how, how does somebody make that strong an impression in just the first meeting I, I still can't I can't explain it it was she was such a vile person uh, the that that she had to be joking was was the way you know I reacted to her first few comments to me and questions to me and uh, it dawned on me she's not joking she's really like this she's this fucking awful and it was overwhelming <laughs> so yeah I was uh, trapped you know, if, if if it was somebody, if I had just been at a at a party or, or at some bar where somebody was coming off like this, you know, there would have been a scene, but I couldn't, you know, because uh, it meant a lot to my nephew Pete that this be okay, you know. And, and looking back at it, you know, I probably should have just blew up at the at the time, but I got a song out of it anyway, so whatever. But it was, yeah, it was it was a bad, uh, <laughs> it was a terrible night. Yeah, well, the uh, the bile seems to uh, to bring out the best in you lyrically, though. Thank you. <laughs> bile, it was. I think that uh, <laughs> if ever you write a memoir, the title would have to be "Damp with Weird Ideas." <laughs> <laughs> well, that comes. You know, I'm uh, shaking hands with people socially. It's always tough for me because I have this hyperhidrosis. My hands are always wet, and. Um, at, at best, people are kind, and they sort of like wince and <laughs> wipe their hands on their pants when they walk away from me. But it's a, terrible, it's a terrible social impression. So it's like here you have these horrible people who are like who hate you before they met you, and like and then you give them this wet hand. So that gives them a reason to hate you suddenly. You know, your your entire worthiness is judged by oh god, the, the wet fish handshake. What is this fucking guy? You know. So it's like you know, it, it, it added to my rage. It's like oh well, well then we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll see. Yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, it, that was really just induced vomiting. That's really what that song was. It was just. It was just. I had to. I had to get that anger off. It was. Uh, it was. It was wanking anger on that one. That's what that was. It's the Sport Murphy version of punk. 
<laughs> yes, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I was a little too old for for it to be like a sincere punk, so I went I went to glam, the immediate precursor. That works. Yeah. Should we do another tune? Suddenly, suddenly gone. It's bugles and bagpipes to send them along. Strong, taken down by these piss-proud swine. Grabbing their fat chance to cut in line Been twitching and fidgeting all this time Like bullies homesick for their hallways Waiting out the bright late days of summer So you cling to the ones who remain And you swallow whatever might help dull the pain You fill up with screams but you try to keep mum You clamp your eyes shut when the newspapers come Avoid every pulpit and
to me, that song right there, if I'm talking to somebody who's unfamiliar with your music and I'm trying to sell them on it, as it were, that's the song that I would play first. Really? Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's just, in in a very concise way, it encapsulates, for me, uh, a lot of what is great about what you do. Not everything, by any means, but encapsulates some of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Not least of which being the lyrical deftness that uh, that is all over that song. Can I talk a little bit about what the the feeling is behind the song? Well, one of the things that I guess uh, leads to your reaction to it is that it's one of the few songs that I didn't like labor over in a, in a way you know it uh, it tumbled out and you know you always hear people talking about that and i i'm not good at that i don't uh, i don't trust my own spontaneous impulses to a fault I, i've revised things and ruined a lot of things that way that one it didn't happen with it was written we did it and um that using that kind of classic mode that almost irish ballad mode um it was second nature to me just because of my upbringing that it was just a natural way to write i wasn't trying to accomplish anything musically um especially just a direct expression just i guess because of the the open wound nature of of where i was at at the time uh, i bypassed all the kind of artifice that i might normally bring to a song and it might have came up with something a little more direct and honest for that and it was just uh, the late days of summer uh it's just one of these things that means something different each time for you know it was literally the, the late days of the summer when 9-11 happened um you know september 11th uh, it wasn't yet fall um also i'm remembering the days of our summer of the summer of our lives when we were kids and it was dead so that was the late days of summer almost eulogizing that um etc they each each time it comes around it has a slightly different cast to it and that dictated the content of the rest of the verse. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was kind of rough listening to it now in a way. I, I it, it brings I haven't I never listened to this stuff. Some of these songs I've listened to, but that one I haven't. And um, it's a little raw. There are certain um, there are certain songs not mine that bring that time back to me. Uh, the End of the World by Skeeter Davis like killed me in a car one day. It came on and it taught, it spoke to me of that whole experience in a way that I couldn't bear. Uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears uh, was one of Petey's favorite songs. And the lyrics in that song directly relate to, you know, holding hands while the walls come tumbling down. Um, one headline, Why Believe It? I, you know, um, denying... I, at the time I was denying the news, I was trying to persuade myself that he was alive under the rubble and he would be found. Uh, a cell f- cell phone would ring and we'd find him something, you know. It, it was a really, really raw um, feeling. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess if it succeeds, it succeeds because that, that got onto the record somehow, that, that, uh, that raw nerve. And the ending of that song, what is it? If you return, your hands upraised. With one green branch from our late days of summer. Yeah, um, it's a, a mission to myself to uh, move forward and, and, and bring 
bring something green and living and new, um, which turned out literally to be my children. Um, they were directly the result of a lot of this mindset. Um, but to to do something that was not um, to to keep myself from wallowing and 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 make something out of it that was going to bring more beauty into the world, more something living, something not. Uh, not filled with bile like the other number (laughs) well that to me there that the ending of that song is as pure a piece of poetry as as i think exists in in your in your work thank you i uh appreciate that It, it it felt like that to me it felt like the truth it felt like i got something directly out and you know i think leonard cohen was always said that to people that don't don't try to be poetic try to try to make yourself clear you know and a lot of people wouldn't have thought that that's what he was trying to do in his in his way but that is what you know what what a great songwriter does and that was one of the few times i think that that last verse you talk about I, i'm satisfied with it and the um arc almost the arc image of the uh, the green shoot it's almost like the bird that returns to the ark and tells noah that there is actually a green living land that they're gonna find soon you know um so so, so thank you for saying that
giant sun Climb on up and show them There's your scaffold Go ahead and have your innocence Yeah, go paint your saints and charge your stars and sing, sing, sing. Just forget that it'll never mean a thing. Let freedom ring. It's daylight in the swamps. Yeah. not so bad so that's daylight in the swamps from from the great unreleased sport murphy album yeah it was a collaboration with uh, a, a brilliant brilliant musician named andres carew um, who uh, persuaded me to cut a bunch of songs after a few years of not really functioning and he had a studio in queens and uh, we were working on it for quite a while and uh, in the course of making it um i found my brother dead on the floor um one day at my parents' old house, and then found out my mother had cancer, and uh, it was just you know, it, it, you know, it's just it was. I, I just I just stopped the project. It's too bad we had about eleven songs uh, in various stages of completion in the can. We may get back to it. We we talk about it. You know, it would certainly be worth finishing the ones that are more or less there and mixing them and everything. But he's he's fucking brilliant, and he was the guy who encouraged me to play my guitar. I used to I have this four string. Um, you know, uh, sub Richie Haven style of playing guitar for writing songs and for teaching them to people. And I always would just teach somebody the chords, then they would play them the way guitar players players play them. Willie would try to get my voicings in his conventional tuning, but uh, yeah, he he encouraged me. It's it's a four string tuning, and and that was very uh, liberating to record that way. And then he's such a genius at at uh, instruments that he built up the rest of the tracks with me. Um, on these uh, on these songs, so yeah, it's so a daylight uh, in the swamps was a uh, wake yeah, a wake up call to myself, you know um, that uh, yeah your career failed and uh, so many so many things went wrong and and that should be viewed as a freedom you know you can't drown in it you have to uh, you have to see the upside of that <laughs> it sounds a whole lot more like pablum when you when you describe it like that but. That's why you write songs, right? Well, did you say that uh, that was what your father used to say to you? Mm. Stay light in the swamps. It was a, it was like an army thing. Um, they would uh, you know play reveille in the morning and get these guys out of out of bed, and the uh, sergeant would yell, "Daylight in the swamps, guys!" You know. So my dad carried that over when I was a kid. It was always a uh, <laughs> it was always a, something less than a pleasure to hear my dad shouting that seven in the morning when you had to get up for school or, or or church or something like that but that was daylight in the swamps and uh you know the the uh it's great because it was the uh the misery of it it meant it meant i had to get out of bed but it was also the affectionate memory of my dad using that that facetious statement you know so it had a lot of personal um 
meaning for me, some of which was negative and some of which was positive. You know, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I uh, try to do with songs, I always felt like Broadway songs have a certain kind of uh, ballast to them. There's a certain kind of weight to them because they are, they are sung by characters who have this other life that's created by the show. So when you hear a song from West Side Story or How to Succeed in Business, you don't have to hear the rest of the show or hear the rest of the story to know that there's something else informing that lyric. You know what I mean? And I think that that's in that case, it's it's a function of, of um, something being written for a plot. But it's also, I think, there's a mystical element to that. You know, I think that there are things that you uh, that you carry into songs that you hope will be conveyed, even though they're not explicit in the thing. So with a song like that there's all the um the memory of of my dad waking me up in the morning there's my memory of dad dad's memories that he told me about of being in the army and all those things that that cumulatively inform this moment of you know uh here i am despairing and upset and okay put it into perspective because you do have all this experience that teaches you that these things come and they go and you have to continue you know it's that and knowing that uh that that phrase originates with your dad and knowing uh his role in your life uh when i hear that last verse i'm hearing that in your dad's voice talking to you right yeah absolutely yep Rise and shine, son. Definitely my dad's voice to me, and it's me. And it's and I was a new father when I cut the thing, so I was I was uh, trying to rise to that, you know, um, trying to trying to rise to the the level that my uh, that uh, where I saw my dad, you know. So I, I got to be that guy now for this pair of children, and uh, yeah, definitely he was that was him there, and that was the thing about. Um, you know, a, a lot of the things in the, in the in the song are presented as dire things that are then immediately deflated. Right, barrage you know. the hearse. Yeah, that's that's what it is. It, it's it's uh it's 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 trying to be sarcastic about your own miseries. You know, just to put them in perspective. Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I lost all this, but I have my own children now. I've got to be like dad, and you know, we got to move on. Got to got to live. Yeah. <laughs> Well, should we play another song from... Now, for, before we even do that, though, I have, let's talk for a second about... Now, this is an unreleased album. Yeah. I hear this song, just for one example, and to me, it sounds so good that it makes me want to accost you for not putting it out. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad about it. I, I, uh, I think what it was was that when the whole thing stopped... You know, it didn't end. We didn't complete it, and we didn't like uh, decide not to do it. We always said we were going to get back to it. Uh, the way my own life went just was unpredictable, and, and um, we never did. But I mean, I still think that you know, in the, in my mind, and maybe in not in the forefront of Andres Carew's mind, but somewhere in there, it's like, yeah, that's just it's just unfinished. We we didn't we didn't discard it. We didn't abandon it. It's just we're not there yet. It's it's an interval. Uh, you know, it's probably not true. We'll probably never get back to it. But um, a lot of work went into it, and uh, well, that song is that song is certainly not unfinished. 
That one, um, we never properly finished it, but that was completed. We did a mix on it. We did a, we did a, a mix because when I went to Paris for the first time, um, there was a, uh, a radio station that wanted something new uh, to promote the show I was doing in Paris, and um, so we we did a we did a mix of that for that purpose. So that's why that one probably sounds more finished than a lot of the other ones. But a lot of them were pretty. We were mixing as we went. You know, we we uh, I, I, we didn't have that much left to do, really. Um, it's it's really too bad. Well, let's hear another song from that unreleased. Okay, here's a song that's um, that refers to a, a professional wrestler, Johnny Rods. I wonder what we'll all decide to make believe we think it means when we're tapped out of snazzy ways to fake it. I wonder when it all begins to look like what it's always been. It's always been a bitter pill. Just take it Johnny Rods, Johnny Rodriguez. 
So what, one of the great fall guys of professional wrestling. Is it the uh, the, the fall guy aspect of his uh, of his persona that? Uh, well, I guess it's not even his persona; it's just kind of his. Uh, I his, thought his it career, was, right? Well, I thought it was the uh, he was he was a physically fit specimen, a great wrestler, but they would put him on stage with a like, Chief J Strongbow, who was like eighty years old, and Strongbow would beat him. It was it was it was injustice. So. Uh, the uh, his in, in the, he was always introduced as the unpredictable Johnny Rods. With the irony of that being that you always knew he was going to lose, and he, he shouldn't have. He should have been a star. But what I really came to love about him was that the dignity of that. I'm going to be the chump, you know. I'm never going to be the star. I'm going to be this workman who does this thing, and and I'm going to ply my craft. You know, it's like a great session musician or something. Somebody who like does all the work that the guy goes on TV and mines, you know, that he's playing, you know, the, the guy who's really uh, the fundament of the of the art of deception that is wrestling. I mean, that's it's a noble kind of thing, you know. He, he's uh, he's using his uh, amazing skills to support this thing um, in a way that doesn't put any glamour on him. And I thought, like, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's something to aspire to, actually, because most of us are cogs and cogs, you know, to, to quote Gentle Giant. You know, we're not, none of us are, are you know, very few of us are, are the flagship of the fleet, you know, uh, and uh, you don't have to be, you know, Johnny Rods. You know, if, you, if you can be him, you, you've... you've You've accomplished something. The underdog. Yeah. The underdog and somebody who really is a success. I mean, you know, he had a great career. That's the other thing. I mean, he's not, he wasn't a chump. I mean, in, in the context of the show that is the wrestling presentation, he's the chump. But really, in terms of his career, he's heroic. He, 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 he acquitted himself ably through decades of uh, dedicated effort. And he uh, ended up running a wrestling school. After he retired from the ring, the squared circle. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's a hero, Johnny Rodriguez. You know, he was uh, he was a, a Puerto Rican who lived in Brooklyn and um, had a had an absolutely wonderful, respectable career. And and we should all aspire to that <laughs> in our lives. Is he still alive? No, I think he died um, relatively recently. I hope I'm wrong, but I think I'm I think I'm right. My, one of my favorite lyrics in that one, though, by the way, you know, San Martino wore the belt, McMahon banked all the guilt. I don't know how they felt, but I know the unpredictable Johnny Rods. That's 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 one I'll I'll crow about. I like that lyric. You talk about poetry in that other song. Now that's poetry. That's the way you do it. <laughs> um, and he died without ever having heard his tribute. Yeah, a lot of guys. I've written a lot of. I, I tend to if I write uh, tribute songs for friends of mine, I, we usually like become enemies, like with some mystical uh, process very shortly thereafter. But none of, none of my uh, heroes who I've written songs about, like John Leslie or Johnny Rods, ever heard the music. It's too bad. <laughs> it's too bad. I, I would have. Uh, I would have liked John Leslie to hear the song. I actually had his address for a long time. I didn't have the balls to send him the, the recording. Um, somebody gave me his address, and I, I didn't have the guts because I didn't want to insult him. I didn't want him to think he was being goofed on. 
And Johnny Rods, I think he would have maybe felt the same way. You know, it sounds like I'm goofing on him. He might have come gunning for you. <laughs> I don't want to tangle with Johnny Rods. <laughs> that was the, the the outcome of that is anything but unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's a good thing you never heard it. Absolutely, absolutely. Sport Murphy, huh? <laughs> That's been a thing of mine. You know, we uh, I had the address of um, of uh, Eugene Pitt from the Giant Five. You know, who I wrote a song called uh, "Sing Me to Sleep" for. Never sent it to him. I didn't have the balls. He was he's, he's an icon. I didn't want to like sully my you know. Uh, I, I I didn't want to I didn't want to inflict my bullshit on him. I guess. And even Neil Innes, who I had a sort of a relationship with, you know, uh, wrote exchanged letters and met several times over decades. Um, I didn't. I never played uh, nights and rounds for him. Or, or tried to get it to him. It's, you, you wrote that song for Neil Innes. Yeah. When I felt like I accomplished it, I said I got to dedicate it to him because he was the model okay. of of, right. of trying to do something like that. You know, but uh, it wasn't like a direct tribute in anything lyrically. But the whole idea of doing a song like that, you know, he might have kicked your ass too. I would want to tangle with him. You know, he's Sir Robin's minstrel. I mean, you know, he, he describes the horrible fates that might uh, befall <laughs> somebody who gets on the wrong side. What's the uh, what's the possibility that some of these songs will see the light of day in the future? The Andre songs, yeah, as is. Uh, I think that he would want to like properly mix them. You know, I feel like he has sort of ownership in this stuff, and um, if he wanted to, uh, if he wanted to do that, I would do it in a second. I mean, Andre, my my respect for Andres is so much that when we were doing the album um, A Room of Voices, I could have used him because he can play any instrument and he's an amazing engineer I could use the advice and I didn't want to bug him because I felt like I had like ditched our project and I wasn't going to call him up now and say hey help me with this it's you know it's, it's which is kind of ridiculous he probably would have been here you know that night you know if I called him but I just felt like uh, you know until we complete this thing that we started um, that we have co-ownership of I um I don't want to bo- bother him with anything. Like the the uh, Johnny Rods has a trumpet part that's really essential to it that we never got to. That's the one thing missing from that. Otherwise, it's ready to go. Wouldn't wouldn't take much, and I would love to do it because so, working working with Andres is one of the joys of my career. So what's stopping you? Uh, the the feeling that I'm done. You know the uh, I. I it might change. I may. I may get the itch to uh, do something, even even just in a complete completion thing like that. But uh, right now, I just feel like so finished <laughs> with with all things musical that uh, th- that's almost the idea behind this thing is is to uh, summarize everything. Just kind of um, you know, it's like a little collage. It's like the it's like the Polaroids you put up at the funeral. You know, <laughs> you stack them on the wall. Well, should we talk about that? And what what do you mean? Why do you feel you're done? Uh I don't know. You know the uh we we I had laid off music for years. Any any idea that I had for a lyric, I would jot in a notebook and never complete. I would put things on tape if it was a riff or something like that, never get back to it. And then finally when the kids were at a certain age where they didn't require like mother henning you know they were they were ba- they were in school and uh 
I had the time to do it. Uh, I said, well, maybe I'll try to do something now. And I did this uh, Kickstarter project. And we uh, succeeded wildly. Uh, we, we, we got all this money and I got all this gear. And I was going to do this whole project myself with a magazine that I was going to print myself and design myself. And CDs I was going to press myself. There's the duplicator right there. Um, and everything was going to be handmade. And I was going to like return to music and do this thing. And it was uh, going to be this. And I was going to include a lot of the people I played with over the years in the project. Uh, and then right after, um, oh, immediately after the Kickstarter succeeded, my kids began to get sick. And uh, catastrophically sick. Uh, turns out they have uh, immune issues that have shattered our lives. Uh, you know, and uh, while while the 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 when we were working on this album a room of voices when i started actually doing the album because i was obliged to now you know after winning the kickstarter thing winning you know after winning that lottery um i started working on the album and i would uh i would go out there and work all night uh i'd, I'd go out when the kids went to bed and shelly went to bed i'd go out to my studio and start working so usually around 11 12 at night i would begin recording and at least once out of every five nights I was out there, I'd, somebody would burst into the door and have to go to the hospital, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, it was hellish, and uh, we had no answers as to what was wrong with them and no uh, useful course of uh, treatment for a long time. It was just, it was, so, so it took, it, what should have, what I had planned that would have taken about a year to complete ended up taking about five years. And when I finally got done with it and, and um, started sending the things out to people, I completely lost faith in it, and I got embarrassed by it, and uh, I felt like it was a complete failure at every level. And a lot of people still haven't gotten it. I mean, you know, I, I just I, I froze up on it. It, it. It's just like when I was working on the first version of this podcast, I couldn't proceed. It's almost like. Uh, traumatic uh, st stress disorder is that what they, what they call that you know um, yeah uh, it's <laughs> it's beyond my control um, so you know it's hard to imagine you know having the confidence plus I'm old I, I got somewhere along the line I got really old and <laughs> it's hard to imagine that's how that works <laughs> yeah it's, it's crazy I, I, I want my money back but um the uh, it, it's kind of hard to imagine having the optimism it, it required to start a project, but I, I won't discount the possibility. You know, I I kind of hope, in some level, that maybe uh, I find my way back to doing some version of it through stuff like this show we're doing right now. You know, that it, that it kind of relaxes me enough that I can do it at least for fun again. You know, I hope so. Well, we're gonna hear a little of that album momentarily but before we do i want to find out well perhaps find out is is too is uh too too grandiose uh an ambition but i at least want to ask you <laughs> you talk about feeling like the project is a is a failure and i wonder having heard it and knowing how good it is i know that i mean it's hard for me to accept that you think it's a failure artistically hard to explain that because when i was done with it i felt really happy um i thought it was uh 
particularly in view of how long it took and all the things that blocked it, you know, all the things that stood in the way of, of completing it, I was real satisfied. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what accounts for that. You, you know, I, I think um, I, I think there are like people out there who really are geniuses who probably never get anything recorded because they can't get past the sort of sense of you know uh, inadequacy or, or uh, whatever it is you know that that keeps you from um, succeed. Uh, keep, yeah, keeps you from completing things. Keep you keeps you from enjoying things you do complete. Keeps you from any kind of satisfaction in your work um it's natural for people to not be satisfied with their work like you know if you if you talk to donald fagan for example he would he would talk about all the early steely dan albums as complete pieces of shit i would you know i would kill myself to be able to have something like that on my um resume you know something like katie light or or royal skim or whatever it's, it's fucking ridiculous it's a drag you know but um i, I think it's a it's a, it's a result of a lot of things, you know. I guess that happen in your life, you know. And in the um, in the in the last twenty years of my life, uh, it's just just been like unbelievably fucked up. I think the importance of of my own work to me just got always put to a side. And then uh, getting back to it, anytime I tried to get back to it, it always seemed like it could never be enough uh, to. Uh, it, it could never be enough. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. It's it just never. Um... This is this is. You, you hear me stammering now. I I really don't know what to say about this stuff. This is why I couldn't complete the first show I was trying to do about this stuff. It, there's a there's a fucking there's a, a brick wall that comes right at me anytime I get into this territory. Um, and I don't know whether it even has to do with the music I make. You know, it might be that might just be the uh, the way it manifests. You know, um, but it's probably it's 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 a disorder. There's no doubt. You know, it's a disorder. One of the things about the uh, podcast, the uh, Buckaroo Holiday, is that um, the idea that I'm sending music out to people that's that's nurtured me through years and decades of life. Um, made me laugh, made me cry, made me inspired, all that shit. That's that's a, a great way of getting back to something that um, the last few years have kind of burned away from me. And possibly something like this might lead back to being a little bit more comfortable with uh, the thought of making music uh, just for pleasure, at least. But it's... You know, music... Look at what happened to Brian Wilson, you know, uh, when um, Pet Sounds was a relative chart failure and, and Smile was kind of dismissed and held back by his own. These are actually relatively trivial things. You know, he was very successful, um, but he had this breakdown around this stuff. I mean, that's how attached you get, you know, to, to this stuff. Uh, but, what, but think about what, what could have happened if he had never made that music to begin with. Absolutely. Think about what kind of a hole he could have gone down. I guess, yeah, right, right. And and there's a there's a curative property to that music, maybe because of what it took for him to make it, and and the the stakes that it represented for him. And that was always what I wanted to make in music. And if I considered this stuff a failure, so I never got the sense that it really did that, you know. But I couldn't know that anyway. Did that for you. Well, for someone else, I mean, for as that it existed as as a um, 
as a piece of uh, as as a as a blessing, you know, as a source for people to go to. I, the best music, and and the best music, by the way, can be really trivial shit, like some dumb disco song. You know, can really do things to you. It can, it can. You, you know what I mean. Of course. Um, it doesn't have to be profound, quote unquote, music. But uh, um, there's there's something about music that was always um, it was a place of safety and a place of nourishment. You know, you you could go there. Time stops. Time stretches. Time is preserved. Um, possibilities are made manifest they exist you know all those things that music can do and um the connection that's created with uh, with these songs that when you share and you talk about them and all that is is, uh, is so important to me that i i want my music to be that same way you know and i <laughs> i don't uh, i don't trust that it is i've never i've never trusted that it is so it's it's tough it's tough well, you know, listening to listening to the podcast and having heard and enjoyed all the episodes of it that you've done, I listen to the music you play, and as much as I enjoy that, my favorite part each time is hearing you talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because, well, in some cases, it's music I already know, in, in mm-hmm. many cases. But whether it is or not... Each time my favorite thing is hearing you talk about it because I'm getting something that is unique to you. Mm-hmm. You know, that I'm not going to get from listening to uh, a song by the Grimms if I put it on my stereo, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. That, that third element. Absolutely. And that is an extension of what you do when you're writing songs and recording songs you know it's just one that's just one one more step down the uh you know up the evolutionary ladder mm-hmm. so you know like like you you know i mean it sounds like you're at least leaving that that possibility open that it, it it's not uh it's not too far a stretch to imagine going from one to the other I think one of the, you know the the, the um, you know the, the themes in a lot of these songs about you know uh, daylight in the swamps and everything is about that. It's recognizing that this this misery, this uh, hell, is real, and it's also nothing. You know, um, so trying to persuade myself of that for with uh, regard to my own work is uh, would be a real breakthrough. Just because I'd feel I'd, I'd feel pretty happy if I could if I could you know get back to that place uh, where I was like uh, you know as excited as I was working with Andres or working on Magic Beans or any of those th- things the, the, when we first cut the Skells album you know those things are uh, those things are really precious I mean even just even experience like we did a show you and I years ago at Paul Gruda's uh, restaurant right we played right. Irish music that's the kind of silly shit that makes this uh, this whole enterprise so incredible I mean you know you, we're doing a nation once again for you know a, a room full of you know <laughs> apathetic you know St. Patrick's Day drinkers and you know it, it, but we were having this great moment as a couple of friends making music you know and uh, that's that's what that's what this stuff really is I mean the uh, 
the thing about listening to stuff like this is uh, like like Willie, for example. We mentioned Willie. You know, the when I think about the decades of uh, of moments that I spent with Willie playing this music, playing records with each other, all that stuff, singing in my parents' house when we were uh, teenagers, pretty much. I mean, that's uh, that's the whole nugget of this stuff, and it it, it provides a. Uh, an object lesson it's 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 a it's a it's proof of 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 a of a an optimistic maybe mindset you know it's it's what i need to uh get by when i'm dealing with what we go through with the kids and everything else that that uh having having had the proof of of the richness of all this work and this time spent with other humans and you know other other people it gets you by it's it, it's what'll keep me from um from uh you know dying the way my brothers did you know uh or uh collapsing into despair absolutely yeah i was getting mighty heavy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i'll use a lot of that but <laughs> so now we are at uh a room of voices a song of a Brooklyn Christmas from long ago called Noel. Being born's no more than chance Dropping dead is fate and in this precious in-between A million scumbags telling you to wait A trillion scumbags forcing you to
I recorded the bulk of the song with a click track, a, a uh, like a, I don't know, like a, a Casio beat or something like that. And then um, Jimmy was visiting and uh, brought him out there, and we had the the uh, digital drum set set up, and he played along with the track. And you know, I, I pitied him because he's he's a he's a real drummer, and he's used to playing real time with the band. And here he is trying to keep with this, you know, create a feel, you know, and play with this uh, dippy little TikTok TikTok, you know, and uh, yeah, he he managed to inject a lot of. Uh, natural feel into it despite all the odds well, let's back up a step hmm. and talk about it. you had uh, pretty specific intentions going into this project in terms of what you wanted it to be about and kind of what you wanted to express with it so why don't you explain that a little bit yeah uh, the um, I guess the thing was I, I wanted to there was a great feeling of optimism that I had for a minute there, <laughs> because uh, you know all, all the tragedies that had happened with my birth family, were kind of behind me. You know there was nobody left to mourn, and um, I had my kids were still pretty small at the time. So the idea, I guess, was uh, "Room of Voices" is yet another Twilight Zone reference. You know they're all over the place. It's uh, from an episode called um, "I Sing the Body Electric," uh, and. Uh, I was existing in this zone where my memory of my upbringing and my parents and my siblings and stuff that I had grown up with were still very close and very vivid and now I had this new family, these children and all that, and this wife that uh, here. So I just wanted to do uh, do something that did justice to both of them, sort of the yin-yang of uh, those uh, two families, two lives. And that's what the songs are about? Yeah, pretty much as it breaks down into the two discs. The first disc is um, referring to uh, my life before my family that I have now. And then the second disc was was about my life since uh, having the kids and all. And so the the intention was that it was going to be kind of triumphant, you know. It was going to be um, a little bit maybe dark on the first disc and more much more upbeat on the second disc because I didn't I saw a clear sailing. I didn't I didn't know uh, I didn't know the kids were going to go through what they've been going through. So you know, it changed. <laughs> it, and what part of the story does that song cover, Noel? Noel is on the first disc, and it uh, it's a the 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 germination of the song was that I wanted. Sometimes I'll pick up a song and write new lyrics for it, and then write new music for those new lyrics as a way of breaking up songwriting habits. If I find that I've been writing pretty much in the same set pattern, I'll, I'll sometimes one one way I break that is you might play on a different instrument, like compose on a new instrument or something like that. In this case, it was, and I've done this a lot. Go to go to another song and then do what I just said. So uh, it was the song, um, the, the first Noel, the Christmas song. First, actually, I wrote new music for it. I wrote new music for the first Noel. And um, then as I had that new music, I'm writing new lyrics, and every time I got to the chorus of it, I couldn't come up with anything that seemed to work, so I just used the original chorus of the Christmas carol, Noel, Noel, born as the king of Israel. And then... Um, 
the uh, lyric wound up being a memory of Brooklyn. Um, there was a drug center, a drug rehab center that my brothers both went to, and they had a, a youth center in there that younger kids went to, and I went there. So we were all sort of together in this rehab center. Um, this is around 1977-71. And um, there was a great optimistic vibe in that place. All these kids who had drug problems were reclaiming their lives, or it seemed to be, you know, th that case anyway. And um, we would have them all over the house for Christmas, and along with all our other extended family and everything. And it was a very optimistic
Magnetic Donkey Party. Magnetic Donkey Party. It's a sign uh, in my living room. You know, we have a house full of antiques and collectibles and, I don't know, what I would call physical non sequiturs <laughs> all over the place. And um, in the living room, there's a, uh, a metal sign with a silkscreen donkey on it, Magnetic Donkey Party, and it's a pin the tail on a donkey game. And... Um, I don't know, when when I was doing the second disc of, of that album and trying to write a song about our uh, our family, our, our two new kids, um, that was the symbol for it. So Magnetic Donkey Party is uh, having a family. We, know, we both know about that. Heralding the arrival of uh, the invaders from another planet. Absolutely, and all the attendant possibilities of, of it. You know, there's a... There's a thing about, you know, I, it was hard to write songs about the kids because you, you, you tend to get very trite, <clears throat> you know, you, you want it because it, it, it's a subject that inspires all kinds of sentiment. And that's that's really the ingredients for some real shitty music. Oh, yeah. So, um, in this case, I just thought to go a little bit more surreal with it. Um, rather than trying to describe how I felt about the kids, just to sort of give a... Um, uh, a hint of the kind of relationship I had with them, which was this goofy sort of, you know, uh, life of life as a non sequitur, as a as a bunch of collected non sequiturs living under the same roof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's really uh, perilous business to try to write about your kids. Forget about it. I I can't. Well, I don't know if I can do it or not, but I've never tried to do it. You haven't tried. I'm so wary <laughs> of it. Yeah. It's really easy to to drill down into misery, and um, and it's easy to talk about uh, highfalutin concepts and everything. But uh, to talk about these simple pleasures is it's like uh, the as profound as they are, it's real tough to make it into something palatable musically. You end up with real schmaltz. The, the people that can pull it off uh, are few and far between. Is that? That's kind of part of the uh, part of the intent that you had going into the the project, then. Yeah, yeah, that was the the challenge. I mean, I had this uh, I had this history of doing shit where it was all you know, like personal whining and everything. And, and if there was one vast difference between the work I did in the past and this album, was that um, suddenly my 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 own navel was not my sole concern anymore i had two two smaller navels to contemplate um and uh it changes everything i mean the same things that seemed profound when i was writing about my own problems just three years before or something like that suddenly were totally insignificant you know and there was uh something about this uh responsibility and something about the pleasures and 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 uh promise of 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 this thing that uh I had no had no personal experience with you know it's uh, I don't know I uh, I hoped I could rise to the occasion of writing a song or two about it because there are very few songs I think that do it successfully Richie Havens did that song on Sesame Street called Wonder Child that that uh, does it now that I mentioned that I'll have to play it on the podcast at some point but. Um, it was Phil Linnett wrote some songs for his kids that are sincere and not not treacly, but it's it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this point, I should probably stop.